Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And welcome to everybody who is either new or a returning listener. We appreciate your support so very, very much. Yes, thank you for listening. We enjoy having you listen to us. Of course, uh, check us out on all the socials. They will be linked in the show notes. Be sure to tell your friends and... Tell your enemies, especially your enemies. And... Of course, any ratings or reviews that y'all want to leave for us is deeply appreciated. And if you're not subscribed to us, why the heck aren't you? We are everywhere. We are on every podcasting platform, and we are also on YouTube. And it's free. And it is free. Now, speaking of uh, free things, I have a very exciting announcement for our fifth, because this is our 50th episode. We want to do something special. I recently designed a new sticker uh, related to the podcast, of course. I'm going to post an image of the sticker on Instagram. The first 25 people to like the post gets a free sticker. Nice. Very, very nice. And you can stick your stickers anywhere. You can put them on your car. You can put them up around your neighborhood. Put them on your bathroom mirror. Whatever. Your ammunition can. Your gun safe. Yeah, that, that would work too. I mean, I have a um, that ammunition box, that purple ammunition box that I put the Fallout stickers on. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian, do you want to tell people what's going on with the recall campaign? Well, pretty, pretty bizarre occurrence. 39,000 signatures were tossed out by the Register of Voters in Orleans Parish. Well, it was found that they were either duplicates or fakes. That's um, that's her story. Mm. That that's her story. The Register of Voters didn't want to deal with this, and she she after, after it was over with, she complained about work, having to work sixteen to twenty hours. In other words, a public official with a life a, a plum lifetime appointment uh, on the public dole, nice cushy salary. Uh, complaining about having to work. Oh, no. You know, it's like, excuse me, ma'am. I didn't complain at all when I was working 12 to 16-hour days to deploy with my Marine Corps unit to the Middle East. Hmm. Okay? And... And don't and don't don't tell me. Oh, I volunteered to do that. That's right. Well, you volunteered to be register of voter register of voters. Okay. You, I mean, you know, you're 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 a career civilian in a nice cushy office with air conditioning. So, you know, when you have to do your job, public official, don't complain. Okay. Uh, I I I don't believe her. I do not believe the register of voters at all. Okay. And in fact, the majority of the signatures collected were rejected, which means chances are my signature, because I did sign the petition, even though I did uh, vote for her, vote to reelect Latoya Cantrell. Okay. Um, I can't help but think that my signature was thrown out. Even though I'm, a, I'm registered in New Orleans and I am an active voter. And I do, yes, I, I live in New Orleans. Well, we both live in New Orleans. I mean, something really smells here. 
well, would you like to hear about some uh, New Orleans officials who did actually do their jobs today? Sure. Okay. So today is, this is going to be a long episode. When, you know, as these things happen, when you start digging sometimes, you tend to find out more information than you thought you would find. Normally, we would have broken this up into two parts, as we tend to do. But since this is our 50th episode, well, why not have some longer content every now and then? (laughs) So... Mark Essex was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1949. His family was considered respectable, and he had an idyllic childhood. And and he had a normal upbringing. There was nothing in his past that pointed to, to anything that he would wind up doing. He was a happy and personable person. He dated women of all races. He enjoyed hunting and fishing. And he believed that there was no difference between black and white people. He graduated high school in 1967. He was an average student who demonstrated a talent for for technical learning. Then after he graduated from high school, he enrolled at Emporia State University, but he dropped out after just one semester. He briefly briefly worked in the same meatpacking plant that his father did. And while he was working there, he was considering his next move. And he decided after his 19th birthday to enlist in, enlist in the United States Army. But his father, who was a World War II veteran, encouraged him to join the Navy and seek vocational training instead. So he enlisted in the Navy on January the 13th, 1969. He committed himself to a four-year contract at advanced pay. What does advanced pay mean? What's an advanced pay contract in the military? Well, I think what that means is he was given a higher rank as as a sign-on incentive. Oh, okay. Okay. Just like when I, when I entered the Marine Corps, uh, I was able to come in at an E2 pay grade instead of the beginning E1 because of my time with uh, Civil Air Patrol. Okay. Well, I was in high school. Oh, yeah. That that would have been like if I would have stuck with uh, going into the Air Force after completing ROTC, then that... they, they might have brought you in an E2 or E3 pay grade because of your Air Force ROTC experience. Right, right. Yeah, that, that was the closest I ever got to being in the military was uh, Air Force ROTC in high school. And I only did that so I could get out of the physical education requirement. Oh, oh, you weren't interested in aerospace science or well, the, the Air Force? The history part was interesting, like the history of, of aeronautics. I did like that. Yeah, oh yeah. They had that in the Civil Air Patrol as well. The Civil Air Patrol was better than ROTC because you got to fly. Mm. Well, we, we did go to a, on a great uh, field trip to Keesler Air Force Base. That was nice. Yeah, the, the encampment at... Barksdale Air Force Base. Uh, well, the difference there is we spent a week at Barksdale Air Force Base, and we got to go up in a KC-135 aerial refueling tanker and take turns watching the boom operator, you know, operating the refueling boom, uh, refuel A-10, A-10 Warthogs. And, you know, that is a view of, of the cockpits of A-10s that very few Americans get to see. 
Well, you could probably find on YouTube these days. Yeah, you can see on YouTube. Nothing like being there. That's true. Uh, Mark Essex was assigned to the Naval Air Station at Imperial Beach, California. Initially, he had a positive experience. He performed his compulsory training at the Naval Training Center with exemplary results. His superiors recommended that he enroll in the Navy Dental Center. He accepted this advice and he apprenticed as a dental technician in April of 1969. He specialized in endodontics and periodontics. He soon formed a close and ongoing friendship with his white supervisor, Lieutenant Robert Hatcher. It, and it was at this point when Mark Essex was subjected to abusive behavior from, from fellow sailors and his superiors. He got beaten up. He got called racial slurs and he was forced to act subservient to white colleagues. Like for example, he would have to ask permission just to go get ice. Well, I mean, it depends upon what you're doing in the military. It just depends on what you're doing, where you are, what you're working on is that that could apply to anybody, but in, 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 in the environment of, of say a dental clinic, uh, that sounds irregular. In fact, the cult, the, the culture in like um, clinics in the Navy is is more laid back than other workshops in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Typically, Navy doctors, Navy dentists, they feel the, the the military protocol can be excessive and gets in the way, so they're more casual. So come to think of it, yeah, that does strike me. It's unusual. Well, this is when Mark Essex started to learn that bigotry was more commonplace than he realized. So you have to remember, he didn't grow up with this. True. Okay, yeah. so he, he comes into this situation as, as an adult, and this is what life is suddenly like for him. So... He was shocked to learn that many black people received this treatment every day. Okay. While enlisted, he obtained a job as a bartender at an enlisted men's club named the Jolly Rotor, where he discovered that certain rooms were off limits to black people. In one letter to his mother, he wrote that he, it's not like he thought they would be. Not like Emporia. Blacks have trouble getting along with white people here. And throughout 1969, he suffered these indignities quietly. He believed that he had been told by, he believed what he had been told by other black recruits that he would be treated better once he achieved a higher rank. He was granted the rank of seaman, but the harassment continued and he began taking sedatives. During this time, he formed a close friendship with a black colleague named Rodney Frank. Rodney was a self-described black militant who worked in the Aircraft Intermediate Maintenance Department. They regularly socialized, and Rodney Frank started to help get Mark Essex radicalized. Now, I do want to say, being radicalized is not necessarily a bad thing. It's what you do with it. Well... To some extent, uh, Marine Corps recruits are radicalized. But it's what you do with it. 
Yeah, that that is correct. What in, in the Marine Corps, uh, the emphasis is on carrying out, following order, law, lawful orders. Notice I say lawful orders to the letter, and carrying out your duties under the most uh, under duress. Right. Right. Because of course, in in a war, you're having to carry out your duties under serious duress, which of course is is why they they deliberately make things difficult for you in boot camp because you're going to be doing a job. If, if you go to war, you're going to be doing a job under very difficult circumstances. You know, the enemy's not going to be nice to you and give you time to do your tasks. That's true. So drill instructors cannot afford to do that when they train you. But of course this is different. Yes. This is a very different situation. Rodney Frank encouraged Mark Essex to read literature about individuals such as Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the founders of the Black Panther Party, which I also want to say here that the Black Panther Party was formed with very good intentions. They did serve a good purpose. And I don't think that, the, that Black Panthers would have done what Mark Essex wound up doing. No, most most of most of them didn't. In August of 1970, Mark got into a physical altercation with a white NCO. The NCO said to him, "How beautiful it must have been in decades past when a racist slur went to sea. It was below decks in the galley, and nobody had to deal with him." It's a pretty messed up thing to tell somebody. Yeah, yeah. it is to tell someone. Well. Yeah, to uh, to that 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 that's where you belong to to quote know your place, right? Now Mark punched him, and they agreed to a compromise to avoid punishment. But the fact that he struck a white NCO only increased the level of harassment and intimidation he was subjected to from white personnel. <clears throat> Two months later, on the morning of August, I'm I'm sorry. The morning of October the 19th, Mark Essex went absent without leave, AWOL, from the Navy. He phoned his mother from a bus station informing her, I'm coming home. I've just got to have some time to think. And during that time, uh, he boarded a Greyhound bus and he remained AWOL until November the 16th, 1970. While at home, he repeatedly described to his family his experiences of, of overt discrimination at the hands of many of the white Navy recruits. He also expressed deep bitterness and his growing hatred towards a white race. Although his family attempted to reason with him, he replied, what else is there? They take everything from you, your dignity and your pride, and what can you do but hate them? That's a pretty, pretty, uh, that, that's a very harsh attitude to have on anybody's part, I think. You, no. sh you shouldn't hate anybody based on race. No, 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 you shouldn't. But when someone, when someone's bull mercilessly bullied, the reactions from the person being bullied eventually aren't very good. That's very true, yes. One month after his, after his desertion from the Navy, his family persuaded Mark to return to Imperial Beach. 
Prior to doing so, Mark Essex ensured he spoke to Lieutenant Hatcher and he explained his reasons for desertion to him. Hatcher's official notes state that Essex informed him, I don't want to have anything more to do with the Navy. It wouldn't be fair not to you or to the dental patients. The bad atmosphere would affect my work. The work is the only thing on the space I like. And he then agreed to plead guilty to charges of desertion. Hatcher provided a vigorous defense of Mark Essex at the hearing. He praised his work ethic and stated the decision for his, his desertion had been influenced solely by ongoing racial discrimination. The judge considered these factors were the cause, and he sentenced Mark Essex to a lenient punishment of 30 days restriction to base and forfeiture of pay for two months. Is that, that, that is considered lenient for the military, right? That's like a misdemeanor no. penalty. Okay. Okay. In February of 1971, Mark Essex was given a general discharge from the Navy for general unsuitability, and he was 21 years of age. Now, considering the time period, yes, given a general discharge is is lenient mm. because what he did uh, on the surface, what he did rates a dishonorable discharge. And can't you also be put in jail if you AWOL and... Yeah, you can be imprisoned for it, yes. Yes. Although he wasn't imprisoned for it. And we are going to pause here for a quick break. And we are back. So, after he was discharged, uh, this experience only made him more angry as he felt he had been unfairly stigmatized by the Navy because they knew about the humiliation that he had endured. He traveled to Manhattan where he joined the the New York branch of the Black Panthers and this radicalized him even further and it was during this period when he familiarized himself with the tactics of guerrilla warfare. He began going by the name Mata and he embraced the extremist content of the 1968 book Black Rage. Two months later, in April of 1971, Mark Essex returned to his family home in, in Emporia. In June, he purchased a Ruger 44 caliber semi-automatic carbine via mail order from an Emporia Montgomery Ward outlet. And he began practicing his marksmanship in the countryside around Emporia. And that August, he abruptly left his family home without telling anyone and he drove to Louisiana in an attempt to meet up with Rodney Frank. During his stay in New Orleans, he did not join the local chapter of the Black Panthers. He moved homes several times between 1971 and 1972 before he relocated to a two-bedroom apartment, I'm sorry, two-room apartment at 2619 Dryad Street in Central City, and this was in November of 1972. While living in the city, he witnessed the poverty of those living in the housing projects, which were in, indeed like, and I don't mean just poor, a poor place to live because the people were impoverished. I mean, it was literally poor housing conditions. Yeah, even for then, the, the proverbial bricks, which were in existence until the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Yes. 
and then they replace them into more modern, better housing. I do have to say, like, if, if you drive past those places today, they don't look, they, they don't, they, they don't look like a bad place to live. Yeah, the new the new housing projects uh, aren't as are are more are more spread out. They're they're quads and doubles. Yeah, in, in essence, so <clears throat> it's not lots of people packed in heavily concentrated. Where you're in the under those conditions, you know, undereducated people are going to, you know, undereducated low income people are going to get into all kinds of confrontation. So it, it isn't like that these days. No, it's, it's a lot better. The, the trouble that we have in the city doesn't come from the projects anymore, really. <clears throat> no, no, it, it sure doesn't. Uh, I've made several, uh, a lot of time doing Uber Eats and, and DoorDash deliveries. I've made several deliveries to the modern Orleans Parish housing projects with no difficulty whatsoever. Mm. So, and I'm sure, though, that when he was looking at these people living in those living conditions, it probably made him even more angry. Yeah, I, I would think it would at the way he was treated when he was in the Navy. And then he comes out to see ordinary civilians who were not necessarily voluntarily living in those conditions, being treated that way. You know, he understands like living conditions he was under in the Navy. That was all voluntary and part, you know, part of the deal when you're in the military. But the discrimination was not part of the deal. Right. Discrimination wasn't. Okay. But, you know, living conditions like, you know, living in a barracks. Okay. You know, right. Not, not the funnest of living conditions. Okay. But it's part of what you sign on for, you know, but. You know, the way the way he was treated in the Navy wasn't what he signed on for, unexpected. And he's seeing all these civilians being, you know, his eyes being subjugated. And it's not what they signed on for in life and the good old U.S. of A. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> in August of 1972, Mark Essex applied for admittance into the Total Community Action Center. Uh, there, there was a federally funded program that he was accepted into, and he took classes specializing in vending machine repair, and he quickly rose to the top of his class. He also began a course of African studies, and he would memorize uh, African language terms and dialects. Many of the words, phrases, and hate slogans that he familiarized himself with in uh, the languages of English, Swahili, and Zulu would be written across the walls and ceilings of his apartment. Oh. Yeah. And during that summer, he had also acquired a Colt 38 caliber revolver. And it was at this point where he isolated himself and he started battling severe depression. So he didn't have any friends. He didn't date anybody. He wasn't going out and having fun. None of that. He was just sitting in his apartment, isolated. And, you know, the effects of isolation on a human being is going to lead to some consequences. Not necessarily deadly consequences, but it's going to lead somewhere that's not pleasant. Yeah, self-imposed isolation is very unhealthy. 
you're not even isolated like that in, in the military. No. In September of 1972, the New Orleans Police Department announced the formation of the Felony Action Squad, which was aimed at reducing the number of violent crimes in the city. In a press statement, then-Superintendent Clarence Giarusso stated that if threatened in any way, members of the Action Squad were authorized to shoot to kill. In October, Mark visited his family again. This time, he was upbeat and enthusiastic, and this led his family to believe that he had recovered from his experience in the Navy. And then, the month after this visit, on November the 16th, Mark Essex learned that two African-American students had been shot to death by East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's deputies during a campus demonstration at Southern University, which is an historically black university. This upset him deeply and he became outraged by the, by the police response of a student civil rights demonstration. And, you know, I mean, as anybody should be. Yeah. That heavy, heavy handed response is completely unnecessary. And back then officers who typically who would panic and shoot would none of them were ex-military and they were they were typically new to firearms and some of them also racist and make no mistake about it if if you are if you are scared of the firearm that you're holding in your hand as a police officer because you have very little experience with firearms beyond your training at the police academy then you're actually more likely to shoot someone in the line of duty because you're more likely to panic. You're, you're less able to focus upon dealing with the situation via other means. So the more training you have, the better. Yeah. The more, the more confidence you are, you have in a firearm, the more you're bonded with the firearm, the better you're able to think in a bad situation and get out of the situation without having to use the firearm because you're not, you're not scared of the firearm in your hand and what it's going to do because you're, you're bonded with it. You're, you're like the construction worker, who can drive a nail with a hammer and three and two or three licks. Right. You're not right. afraid of the hammer in your hand. You're not afraid of the nails. You see. Right. So you're focusing, you're able to focus on the task. So shortly after that shooting, he penned a letter to his mother in which he wrote, <clears throat> Africa, this is it, mom. It's even bigger than you and I, even bigger than God. I have now decided that the white man is my enemy. And I will fight to gain my manhood or dry or or die trying. And it's interesting how he mentions that it's bigger than God. So at that point, he 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 doesn't care about what's morally right or wrong. He doesn't care about religion. He doesn't care about God. The consequences. So he's 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 changed the he's he's changed his priority structure there he's radicalized like for for example uh in the in the marine corps your three your three biggest priorities okay as far as as far as who you answer to god country core okay that's like the hierarchy right right meaning your actions in the marine corps must be first accountable to God, then your country, then the Marine Corps, you see. Mm -hmm. But 
he's apparently he's he's changed the order, mm. possibly even taking God out of the uh, out of the equation. Like another example of a perversion of this is uh, say, okay, now we'll get into movies just for a moment. The movie A Few Good Men, right? Whereas you the, these uh, you could see these radicalized Marine Corps and security forces infantry at Guantanamo Bay in the movie, okay. They changed the order. They were calling it. Uh, uh, they were they were doing God Core Country. Mm. Okay, whereas they were putting the country last. Right, right. So, and, and that is actually a typical mindset for a radical religious extremist. They they. Uh, yeah, they 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 are putting God before everything, but they're not accounting for the the rules and regulation and the laws of their own infrastructure mm. you see because because they've they they have perverted themselves into believing that that god is on their side right and then they're realizing oh well you know the the country's not on my side but god's on my side so I can break whatever laws I want because God is on my side, you see. Right, right. On Christmas Day, Mark Essex ate dinner with the family of a fellow student from the TCA program, and that evening he phoned his family. He made a specific point of talking to each family member in succession, and he conveyed no sense of distress. Over the following days, he gave away most of his possessions to acquaintances and neighbors, and he told them that, that he intended to return to Emporia. Days before New Year's Eve, he wrote a letter addressed to WWL-TV signed Mata, in which he described his intentions to attack the New Orleans Police Department on December the 31st. He cited the primary justification for for the impending attack as being vengeance for the deaths of the two innocent brothers killed in the Southern University civil rights demonstration the previous month. In Baton Rouge, though, right? It was in Baton Rouge, yes. Okay, yeah, that was another indication that he was losing touch of reality. Mm. He, he was grouping all policemen under the same, just, he was... Just under the same, with painting them all with the same brush. He wasn't even going after the, the department itself that was responsible. Right. But we are going to pause here again and take a quick break. And we are back. By 11.20 a.m., scores of police officers and firefighters had converged at the hotel. Superintendent Giarusso had established a command post on the ground floor and deployed marksmen in various strategic positions around the hotel. Within the hour, he ordered a room-by-room -room search for the perpetrator. Several firefighters attempted to rescue guests who had fled to the hotel balconies to escape both the gunmen and numerous fires he had started. Rescue efforts were hampered by, by Mark Essex pinning down emergency responders to the scene with his firearm and conflicting descriptions as to the height, weight, and clothing and initially, police believed that there were two shooters and not just one. That's that's often, that is very often the case. 
as he sometimes when there's multiple rounds fired from multiple positions, it's assumed it is two shooters, although in this case it is one shooter with a very good supply of ammunition to top off that three-shot tube-fed magazine. One of the first firemen to arrive at the hotel was 29-year-old Timothy Erson. He was ascending to a balcony to rescue guests, and he was followed by two patrolmen. Mark Essex leaned from a balcony and shot Erson through the shoulder, and Erson fell into the arms of one patrolman as, as as the other patrolman returned fire at Essex. Erson would survive, but he lost one of his arms. That's not surprising. You get hit by a, proje- a very powerful projectile that's designed to take down a deer. The diameter, 0.44 inches, it, that's almost a half inch. hitting Half inch bullet hitting you in the arm with a lot of power behind it. Uh, as paramedics placed Urson in the ambulance, Mark Essex shot and wounded the driver of the ambulance as well. It was a, his name was 20, his name is Christopher Caton, and at the time he was 20 years old, and he shot him in the back. So once again, shooting people in the back. Just moments later, Officer Charles Arnold obtained a strategic position offering a prime view of the hotel from an office complex across the street. As Arnold opened a window to afford a clear view, a single bullet tore into his jaw and sent him going sprawling backwards onto a desk. Arnold pressed a towel against his wound and walked to nearby Charity Hospital to seek treatment for for it. He did survive this injury. Deputy David Munch was positioned across from the hotel and he was shot in the leg and neck by Mark Essex. He did survive. At 11.55 a.m., officers Kenneth Solis and David McCann were trying to clear a crowd of onlookers from the north side of the hotel. Solace was shot in the right shoulder and the bullet exited beneath, beneath his lower rib cage and David McCann was able to carry him to safety. 43-year-old officer Emmanuel Palmazano ran to help them and Palmazano was shot in the arm and the back. 26-year-old officer Philip Coleman rolled out of the driver's seat of his patrol car and opened the rear door in order to transport Palmazano and Solis to Charity Hospital, but Mark Essex fatally shot Philip Coleman in the head. Essex then climbed down to the fourth floor parking lot. Uh, Maybe he had intentions to flee. He shot at and missed two police officers. He saw a standing guard inside of the parking lot. He then went back up to the 16th floor where he saw a 33-year-old traffic officer, Paul Persigo, escorting onlookers to safety outside the hotel. Mark Essex fatally shot him in the mouth. And according to several eyewitnesses, Persigo, he staggered several, several feet before falling to the sidewalk and he was pronounced dead on arrival at Charity Hospital. Yeah, he he had these officers outgunned with that eight with that forty four Magnum carbine with an eighteen inch barrel, and these officers were not exactly as well armed as say Dirty Harry, 
they were carrying probably, uh, you know, four-inch barrel Smith & Wesson Model 10 38 caliber revolvers, uh, a bit shy of the six-inch barrel 44 Magnum that, that you know, Detective Callahan, Dirty Harry carried. Uh, and, of course, you know, 44 Magnum coming out of an 18-inch barrel of this carbine is more powerful than Dirty Harry's six-inch revolver. Right. So, yes, he has them significantly outgunned here. Uh, the ones surviving their wounds, very likely it was a deal to where this heavy bullet simply passed all the way through. Oh, yeah. And didn't stop inside the body. Okay. Which is why, personally, I, I never recommend forty-four Magnum as a home defense round. Because if a bullet passes straight through someone, if it doesn't stop inside the body to release its kinetic energy inside, okay, which is more like, which it's going to make a a, a bullet-sized hole that just passes straight through. It's not going to have a, a as big a wound cavity as if the bullet would stop. You see, right? Um, so, just word of advice: if you're listening and you have a 44 Magnum revolver and you want to use it for home defense, purchase uh, 44 special rounds, which will work in the same revolver. They're just a bit less powerful, but powerful enough to defend yourself against a person. Keep in mind, people, the 44 Magnum revolver rounds, or in this case, carbine round, is engineered for short range deer hunting. Okay. Penetration and a big and a, you know, p- powerful caliber of what you need to take down a deer. Yes. Yeah, and deers are big animals. Yes, very, very big animals, much larger than us. Shortly after noon, Deputy Superintendent Louis Sergo organized a rescue party of three men to free patrolmen who they believed were still trapped inside of the elevator shaft close to the 18th floor. At about 1 p.m., while approaching the 18th floor, Sergo and his colleagues heard what they believed to be a police whistle from this floor. They thought that the whistling was the officers signaling their location, but as Sergo turned the final corner of the staircase, Mark Essex shot him once at almost point-blank range through the chest. This exposed his spine, and... Sergo fell backwards onto his fellow officers. Mark Essex immediately turned and ran in the direction of the hotel roof. And unfortunately, Louis Sergo would also be pronounced dead on arrival at Charity Hospital. At 2 p.m., Mark Essex had depleted his supply of firecrackers and his ammunition. And this is when he took cover in a concrete cubicle on the southeast side of the hotel roof. And over the following hours, he repeatedly shot at a CH-46 military helicopter. This was piloted by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Pittman, who was a pilot in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Fun fact is that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pittman did not get clearance to go there. He voluntarily flew there to aid police officers. Yeah, it's an emergency situation. Uh, I, I don't I don't blame him. Uh, that situation, not being in a theater of operations where you can quickly communicate with your chain of command, uh, he didn't have any. He did, really didn't have any time to get clearance to do this. 
Mm. You know, the the unit was not in an operational status. You see, other otherwise, it you know he would have been able to gain to gain clearance to do this. He simply didn't have enough time. The CH forty six Chinook helicopter, which has two rotors, one in the front, one in the back, uh, troop carrier that can uh, carry jeeps. Back in the day, uh, still used, still in the Marine Corps inventory of, of helicopters. Uh, didn't get to fly in one of those. I got to fly in the CH fifty three. Though, uh, <laughs> a louder helicopter, a little larger too. So, Pittman first landed the helicopter near the hotel to pick up five police sharpshooters, and then the helicopter performed several strafing runs over the hotel roof. And Pittman later stated his hope to at least strike Essex with a ricochet, although it is unknown whether he was wounded in any of these exchanges. Now, keep in mind here, uh, at the police academy, you are trained on how to do a ricochet shot, okay? Um, When someone's cover is behind cover, like one example is how if someone's hiding behind a car, you're trained upon the, the angle to use to, to hit the concrete to get it to, to get the bullet to travel underneath the car oh, and at least okay. hit the assailant in the foot. Okay, so gotcha. you do receive some training in how to engineer a ricochet shot. Barricade situations only, of course. In each instance that the helicopter flew away from the hop, from the hotel to reload, Mark Essex returned fire at the helicopter. So he is really, he's, he's holed up in this cubicle. He doesn't have a lot of ammunition left. And he's only returning fire at the helicopter as it's leaving. He's trying to intimidate them. Mm. Yeah. And it's, oh. it's going to have an effect on the air crew of a helicopter if you start putting holes in it which isn't going to be good enough to really affect the helicopter because the, uh, you know, the aluminum alloy, uh, it's the gunshots are going to pass through one side of the aluminum alloy frame and then out the other. Um, You're only by by shooting the frame of the helicopter. You're only going to do damage if you hit a, if if you hit a hydraulic fluid line. What if you cause a hydraulics leak? What if you hit the rotor? It depends on the caliber. Oh, okay. Of the, of the bullet, a pistol bullet wouldn't do anything. Even forty-four Magnum probably wouldn't damage the rotor. You'd need a, a rifle bullet, like a heavy rifle bullet, like the kind that uh, Mark Essex was using. No, that no. Keep in mind, even though it was a pistol caliber, I mean, it's a carbine. Okay, it was in a pistol caliber. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. The Pistol, pistol bullets don't have as hardened a shell. I should I say a uh, plating over the bullet as a military rifle round would. So to take out a rotor, you need a military rifle round, pre- preferably like fifty caliber, like a machine a machine gun round. Forty four Magnum pistol round isn't gonna isn't gonna do that. Now, initially, Superintendent Giarusso was reluctant to place any further officers at risk of injury or death 
by deploying them to the hotel roof. His strategy was to keep the sniper pinned in the cubicle in order to erode the mor- his morale. And after several hours in a last-ditch effort to persuade Essex to surrender, Giarusso ordered a black police officer to communicate with, with Mar- Mark Essex via a battery-operated bullhorn. The officer did attempt to persuade Mark to surrender for several minutes, ending his efforts by saying, what do you say, brother? Why not save yourself? Give up before it's too late. If you're wounded, we can get you medical help. Medical help. In response, Mark Essex just screamed, power to the people. In his mind, he was past the point of no return. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, he, he, he'd already created a lot of chaos. He's already killed several people. Yeah. He There's no coming back from that. No, not in his mind. And although this officer responded to this gesture by saying, come on down, man, don't die. Don't make us kill you. Mark Essex refused to say anything else. Shortly before 9 p.m., after almost seven hours crouched in the cubicle, Mark Essex suddenly charged into the open with his rifle at waist height and his fist held aloft, shouting, Come and get me. And he was immediately shot by police sharpshooters positioned on the roofs of adjacent buildings. The military helicopter, which had just approached to begin another strafe run, also fired scores of rounds into Mark Essex's body. The momentum of the bullets propelled his body several feet before he fell on his back 20 feet from the cubicle. He was unable to kill or wound anyone else, and the barrage of gunfire would continue for almost four minutes. The autopsy later revealed that Mark Essex had received more than 200 gunshot wounds. Yeah, these these were these were sharpshooters firing with uh, like Mark Essex with with uh, deer hunting rounds in essence. Mm. You know, three oh eight thirty thirty six. Right. <clears throat> those 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 types of rounds. Uh, the old traditional military hunting style rounds from you know before the Vietnam War era, you know Korean War era and before. Uh, so you know they meant business. Now, in this case of snipers, the reason why a police sniper is going to use a 308 caliber or even, you know, 30 6 caliber round is because you need something that is going to stop your target from a distance. The greater the range, the, the less power the round is going to have. So you want something capable of traveling that distance that is still going to have the power to stop your adversary. Right. And of course, a, a you know, your classic 30 6 or 308 round falls well within that category. And we are going to stop here to take our final break. And we are back. On New Year's Eve 1972, at about 11 p.m., Mark Essex parked his car and walked along Perdido Street, which was a block from the NOPD police. Perdido Street. Perdido, Perdido, same thing. 
uh, Street, a block from the NOPD police station. He was armed with the Ruger 44 caliber semi-automatic carbine and the 38 caliber revolver. He also had a large supply of ammunition, a gas mask, wire cutters, lighter fluid, matches, and a string of firecrackers. And this carried all this inside of a yeah. green duffel bag. Now, now, just for clarification here, okay. He had a large supply of ammunition, but he didn't have any magazines. And the reason for that is the Ruger model, which is also called the Ruger model 44, 44 Magnum semi-automatic carbine, which is rare for 44 Magnum because that's a revolver cartridge. Okay, so this has to be specially engineered to, you know, feed this revolver cartridge. Okay, uh, whereas ordinarily a carbine or revolver cartridge is going to be a lever action. Okay. Uh, if it didn't feed from a magazine, it fed from a tube underneath the barrel. Okay, a three-shot tube. This was this was uh, designed as a three-shot because of restrictions on hunting, where you can't have any more than three rounds of ammunition loaded in the hunting rifle or the shotgun. Okay, so, uh, but the now the tactical advantage someone would have with that type of rifle from a rooftop is with enough ammunition, let's say you fire one shot or two shots, you, you top off the magazine tube immediately by inserting one or two more rounds in the tube. You don't have to wait till you run out of ammo like you would to change ammunition, you know, to put in a fresh magazine of ammo, okay? okay. Um, and also, consider he had a hunting background, okay? So that's why he chose some to, uh, a rifle of a high caliber. Right, right. See, that 44 Magnum out of a carbine is much more powerful than what the U.S. military was using then and to this day, that, that little 5.56, five, that skinny little 5.56 five, round, you know. Uh, keep in mind, the AR-15 rifle was being manufactured at that time by Colt, uh, the sole holder of the copyright at the time. But he chose a hunting rifle, okay, much more dangerous. Hmm, okay, okay. So across the street from the police station was a poorly lit parking lot, and he was able to hide behind the cars across from the central lockup. He began firing at the first police officer that he saw, and it was a 19-year-old cadet named Bruce Weatherford. Uh, Weatherford was walking towards the gatehouse to report for duty, and when Weatherford heard the shots, he dove for cover behind a car, and then he turned to see a fellow, the, the cadet that he was relieving, a 19-year-old Alfred Harrell, running to his aid. Mark Essex shot Harrell once through the chest, and Lieutenant Horace Perez was also wounded in this attack. Perez was wounded in the ankle by the same bullet that had struck Harrell, and then it ricocheted off a wall. I'm not surprised that two people were injured from one round of ammunition from a 44 Magnum coming out of a carbine with an 18-inch barrel. Okay. Mm, okay. That's a lot of power, so it is likely to go through the first person hits and even hit someone else, and even ricochet. Very powerful. He fired a total of six rounds in this attack. And Mark Essex evaded capture by climbing a chain-link fence, and he ran across the I-10 expressway after setting off several firecrackers as a diversion. He ran into an industrial area of Girt Town, and this area of New Orleans was known for high crime and hostility towards the police. 
he was able to gain entrance to a building by shooting four rounds from from the 44 carbine at the door the building was the burkhart manufacturing building which was a warehouse and manufacturing plant his actions set off an alarm which alert which alerted the police and this unit was led by officers edwin hosley senior and harold blackbird uh, they responded to the call and neither one of them realized that this incident was connected to the earlier attack on the central lockup yeah, and also keep in mind back then, uh, there were the radios were only in the patrol cars. That's yeah, they were only in the patrol cars. They didn't really have surveillance footage or any of these things back then either. Yeah, so once a police officer back then would leave the patrol car, they're cut off from radio contact. They didn't have handheld radios. Also, the reason why he was able to fire four shots from uh, a three-shot uh, carbine was because he loaded, uh, he had one in the chamber plus the three in the tube. Gotcha. The two officers circled the building, mm-hmm. and as Officer Hosley ex- ex- exited his vehicle, um, he was coming, Mark Essex shot him once in the back. Officer Blappert reached for the radio on the front seat and called for backup. And Officer Blappert returned fire. He shot four shots at the spot where he saw the muzzle flashes from Essex rifle. Then he pulled his partner onto the front seat and waited for backup. Within minutes of Blappert's call, over 30 armed police officers arrived at the warehouse. They sent two canines into the building to search for Essex, but he had already left. Um... Spots of blood on the ground beside a discarded Colt 38 revolver, multiple discarded rounds of ammunition, and a bloody handprint found upon a windowsill within the Burkhart building indicated that Mark Essex had received a wound, although not an, not a serious one in this fire exchange with Blackbird. Yeah, also of note here, a couple of things. Uh, the reason why the muzzle flashes were so readily visible at night time is a 44 magnum cartridge which has a lot of pistol powder behind it uh even coming out of a an 18 inch barrel versus a six inch revolver is going to have a pretty bright bright muzzle flash another also worthy of notes uh one reason why it was just simply was wounded okay is uh 38 caliber police rounds at the time uh were just regular round nose lead bullets, no hollow points. Okay. <clears throat> Police searched all through the night to try to find whoever this was. Of course, they didn't know it was Mark Essex. Um, they conducted a house-to-house search, and they finally ended it at 9 a.m. on January the 1st, 1973. The decision to terminate the search for the perpetrator was made moments after the police discovered two carefully placed live rounds pointing at the doors of the first new saint mark baptist church about two blocks from the burkhart building and officer hosley would die of his injury so this was you know a a very in in his first night of doing this uh two people that he wound up killing it's no surprise. I mean, 44 Magnum was engineered for close range deer hunting. Mm. 
a handgun round that can drop a deer. Okay, it's it's very powerful. At 9 p.m. on January 1st, the pastor of the first New St. Mark Baptist Church entered the church to find a young armed black man inside. The pastor fled to a neighbor's house and called the police. Although by the time the police arrived, the individual had left. The police investigation would later determine that Mark Essex had returned to the church and remained at the site until January the 3rd. So he was hiding out. He managed to hide out in that church for a couple of days. Yeah, he's a very disappointed individual. That's true. That's true. A grocer observed Mark entering his store with a bloodstained bandage on his left hand on the evening of January the 2nd. The grocer was named Joseph Pernicaro, and he said that he sold provisions including food and a razor to Essex. Um, He believed that Essex, of course, was shady. I mean, why wouldn't you think this? I mean, he had a bloody tan bandage. You know, he probably looked, he probably didn't look good either. Right. right? I, I believe even the inconvenience store clerks were accustomed to dealing with shady individuals. Mm. So the grocer told his stock boy just to follow Essex and see where he might go to. And the stock boy told him that Essex had walked across the street and into the church. So it's confirmation that Mark Essex was indeed hiding out in that church. And the grocer reported this information to the police. And when law enforcement arrived to search the church that evening, once again, Mark Essex had already gone. He left behind only bloodstains and food wrappings. A bag containing several 38 caliber cartridges were found hidden in a bathroom alongside a letter penned by Essex to the minister, apologizing for breaking into the church. Ah. Mm -hmm. I guess he felt God was on his side. (laughs) Many of these uh, radicalized uh, types believe that. Mark Essex's whereabouts between the evening of January the 3rd and the morning of January the 7th, 1973, are unknown. But on January the 7th, 1973, at 10.15 a.m., Mark Essex returned to Joe's Grocery and shouted to Joseph Pernicaro, You, come here. And when Joseph attempted to flee, Essex shot and severely wounded him with the 44 Magnum carbine. He then carjacked a black man named Marvin Albert as he sat in his 1968 Chevrolet Chevelle outside of his house. Mark said to Marvin, I don't want to kill you, but I'll kill you too. So dangerous. Yes. Very dangerous, okay? We're willing to kill anyone who gets in his way, whether whether he wants to kill them or not. And it was at this point when Mark Essex drove the vehicle to the 17-story downtown Howard Johnson's Hotel at 330 Loyola Avenue in the New Orleans Central Business District across the street from City Hall and Orleans Parish Civil District Court. As well as the the main branch for the Orleans Parish Library. Oh, yeah, that's true. Where there's there's many public records stored in the basement. 
He parked the vehicle on the fourth level of the hotel's garage, and he climbed the fire escape stairs directly from the garage. Each door he tried to access on the fire escape was locked until he reached the eighth floor, where he encountered two maids. He said, let me in, sisters. I've got something to do. The two women refused, citing hotel regulations. And then Mark ran up the stairs to the ninth floor. The two women, they did see him, and they observed that he had a rifle in his hands, and they ran to alert management of the impending threat. Mark eventually gained entry to the 18th floor, which had been propped open with a stack of linen. And the first people that he encountered were three, were three black employees of the hotel. He immediately said to them, don't worry, sister, I'm only shooting whites today. And they also ran to notify authorities. Yeah, that, 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 that's pretty scary to the average person. Someone just casually talking about, you know, who they're going to shoot today in the same fashion of, of you know, I've got some errands to run. I've got some errands to run. I'm going to go get some breakfast first. Yeah. Yeah. In the hallway by room 1829, Mark Essex encountered 28-year-old Dr. Robert Stiegel. Dr. Stiegel asked him, what are you doing? And Mark raised his rifle, and Stiegel lunged at him. Uh, there was a brief struggle, and Stiegel was shot through the arm and knocked to the floor, and then Mark fatally shot him through the chest. His 25-year-old wife, Elizabeth, screamed, please don't kill my husband. And as she attempted to cradle her husband's body, Mark Essex shot her once through the base of her skull and killed her instantly. He then entered the Stiegel's room and he soaked telephone books with lighter fluid and set them on fire beneath the curtains before dropping a pan-African flag onto the floor besides the bodies of the couple as he ran towards one of the hotel's interior stairwells. On the 11th floor, he encountered I'm sorry, on the 11th floor, Mark Essex entered several vacant rooms and set bedding on fire. He also shot and killed the hotel's assistant manager, a 62-year-old man named Frank Schneider, who was investigating reports of an armed intruder. Before encountering Mark Essex, Schneider and a porter named Donald Roberts had talked to a maid named Beatrice Greenhouse, who warned them of the intruder's intentions. As both turned to run, Essex raised his rifle and, and shot Schneider in the back of the head. And Roberts reached the safety of a nearby stairwell. He ran to a payphone and notified police. So the thing that that sits or that uh, stands out to me here is that Mark Essex is shooting people in the back. Yes. Okay, he's not even doing his face to face. No. He's shooting people who are running away from him. That's right. Yeah. It, it's it's clearly not self-defense. It, it's it's murder. It's murder, pure and simple. And there's there's hundreds of thousands of black people who have his same gripes, and they're not out there murdering people. No, they're not. In, including and. Strangely enough, the people he's already murdered in that hotel at this point don't have anything to do with what has happened to him at all. Right, right. They they were not the ones who tormented him in the Navy. 
for example. Not not even the same not even the same types of people. Mark Essex then ignited another fire on the eleventh floor before he went down to the tenth floor, where he encountered the hotel's general manager, Walter Collins. And Walter Collins was attempting to warn guests about about the fires. Mark Essex shot and killed Collins, who shouted to a guest to shut her door and call the police. And Collins, before he died, was able to crawl into a stairwell. Now the fires he the fires he 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 started mm-hmm. was a, of obviously a diversionary tactic. Probably so. Shortly after 11 a.m., two young patrolmen named Michael Burl and Robert Childress arrived at the hotel. The two began an ascending floor-to-floor search. On one of the lower floors, they encountered Beatrice Greenhouse, who informed them that the perpetrator was on one of the upper floors. In an error of judgment, the two went to the 18th floor in an elevator, which had halted close to the top floor, due to smoke in the elevator shaft. And about the same time, Mark Essex shot 43-year-old hotel guest and a broadcasting executive named Robert Beamish in the stomach as he walked close to the 8th floor swimming plaza. Beamish fell into the swimming pool, and but luckily he was not badly hurt. He remained in the water for almost two hours before he was rescued, and he did live. Yeah, that that that's he was very luck, lucky to have survived uh, any kind of wound from a a forty four Magnum carbine. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too. Okay, and we are going to stop here to take another quick break, and we are back. By eleven twenty a.m., scores of police officers and firefighters had converged at the hotel. Superintendent Giarusso had established a command post on the ground floor and deployed marksmen in various strategic positions around the hotel. Within the hour, he ordered a room-by-room search for the perpetrator. Several firefighters attempted to rescue guests who had fled to the hotel balconies to escape both the gunmen and numerous fires he had started. Rescue efforts were hampered by by Mark Essex pinning down emergency responders to the scene with his firearm and conflicting descriptions as to the height, weight, and clothing. And initially, police believed that there were two shooters and not just one. That's, that's often, that is very often the case. As he, sometimes when there's multiple rounds fired from multiple positions it's assumed it is two shooters although in this case it is one shooter with a very good supply of ammunition to top off that three-shot tube fed magazine one of the first firemen to arrive at the hotel was 29 year old timothy urson he was ascending about to a balcony to rescue guests and he was followed by two patrolmen Mark Essex leaned from a balcony and shot Urson through the shoulder, and Urson fell into the arms of one patrolman as as, a, as the other patrolman returned fire at Essex. Urson would survive, but he lost one of his arms. That's not surprising. You get hit by a, proje- a very powerful projectile that's designed to take down a deer. The diameter, 0. 0.44 
inches. That's almost a half inch hitting. Half inch bullet hitting you in the arm with a lot of power behind it. Uh, as paramedics placed Urson in the ambulance, Mark Essex shot and wounded the driver of the ambulance as well. It was a, his name was twenty. His name is Christopher Caton, and at the time he was twenty years old, and he shot him in the back. So once again, shooting people in the back. Just moments later, Officer Charles Arnold obtained a strategic position offering a prime view of the hotel from an office complex across the street. As Arnold opened a window to afford a clear view, a single bullet tore into his jaw and sent him going sprawling backwards onto a desk. Arnold pressed a towel against his wound and walked to nearby Charity Hospital to seek treatment for, for it. He did survive this injury. Deputy David Munch was positioned across from the hotel, and he was shot in the leg and neck by Mark Essex. He did survive. At 11.55 a.m., officers Kenneth Solis and David McCann were trying to clear a crowd of onlookers from the north side of the hotel. Solis was shot in the right shoulder, and the bullet exited beneath his lower rib cage, and David McCann was able to carry him to safety. 43-year-old officer Emmanuel Palmazano ran to help them, and Palmazano was shot in the arm and the back. 26-year-old officer Philip Coleman rolled out of the driver's seat of his patrol car and opened the rear door in order to transport Palmazano and Solis to Charity Hospital, but Mark Essex fatally shot Philip Coleman in the head. Essex then climbed down to the fourth floor parking lot uh, maybe he had intentions to flee. He shot at and missed two police officers. He saw a standing guard inside of the parking lot. He then went back up to the 16th floor where he saw a 33-year-old traffic officer, Paul Persigo, escorting onlookers to safety outside the hotel. Mark Essex fatally shot him in the mouth. And according to several eyewitnesses, Persigo uh, he staggered several several feet before falling to the sidewalk, and he was pronounced dead on arrival at Charity Hospital. Yeah, he he had these officers outgunned with that eight with that forty four Magnum carbine with an eighteen inch barrel, and these officers were not exactly as well armed as say Dirty Harry. They were carrying probably, uh, you know, four-inch barrel Smith & Wesson Model 1038 caliber revolvers, uh, a bit shy of the six-inch barrel 44 Magnum that, that you know, Detective Callahan, Dirty Harry, carried. Uh, and, of course, you know, 44 Magnum coming out of an 18-inch barrel of this carbine is more powerful than Dirty Harry's six-inch revolver. Right. So, yes, he has them significantly outgunned here. Uh, the ones surviving their wounds, very likely it was a deal to where this heavy bullet simply passed all the way through. Oh, yeah. And didn't stop inside the body. Okay. Which is why, personally, I, I never recommend 44 Magnum as a home defense round. Because if a bullet passes straight through someone, if it doesn't stop inside the body to release its kinetic energy inside, okay, which is more like, which it's going to make a or a bullet-sized hole that just passes straight through. It's not going to have a, a as big a wound cavity as if the bullet would stop. 
we see. Right. Um, so just word of advice, if you're listening and you have a 44 Magnum revolver and you want to use it for home defense, purchase uh, 44 special rounds, which will work in the same revolver. They're just a bit less powerful, but powerful enough to defend yourself against a person. Keep in mind, people, the 44 Magnum revolver round, or in this case, carbine round, is engineered for short-range deer hunting. Okay. Penetration and a big and a, you know, p- powerful caliber are what you need to take down a deer. Yes. Yeah, and deers are big animals. Yes, very, very big animals, much larger than us. Shortly after noon, Deputy Superintendent Louis Sergo organized a, a rescue party of three men to free patrolmen who they believed were still trapped inside the elevator shaft close to the 18th floor. At about 1 p.m., while approaching the 18th floor, Sergo and his colleagues heard what they believed to be a police whistle from this floor. They thought that the whistling was the officers signaling their location, but as Sergo turned the final corner of the staircase, Mark Essex shot him once at almost point-blank range through the chest. This exposed his spine, and... Sergo fell backwards onto his fellow officers. Mark Essex immediately turned and ran in the direction of the hotel roof. And unfortunately, Louis Sergo would also be pronounced dead on arrival at Charity Hospital. At 2 p.m., Mark Essex had depleted his supply of firecrackers and his ammunition. And this is when he took cover in a concrete cubicle on the southeast side of the hotel roof. And over the following hours, he repeatedly shot at a CH-46 military helicopter. This was piloted by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Pittman, who was a pilot in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Fun fact is that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pittman did not get clearance to go there. He voluntarily flew there to aid police officers. Yeah, it's an emergency situation. Uh, I, I don't I don't blame him. Uh, that situation, not being in a theater of operations where you can quickly communicate with your chain of command, uh, he didn't have any. He didn't, really didn't have any time to get clearance to do this. Mm. You know, the the unit was not in an operational status. You see, uh, other otherwise it, you know he would have been able to gain, to gain clearance to do this. He simply didn't have enough time at the CH 46 Chinook helicopter, which has two rotors, one on the front, one in the back, uh, troop carrier that can, uh, carry Jeeps back in the day, uh, still used, still in the Marine Corps inventory of, of helicopters. Uh, didn't get to fly in one of those. I got to fly in the CH 53 though. Uh, <laughs> a louder helicopter, a little larger, too. So, Pittman first landed the helicopter near the hotel to pick up five police sharpshooters. And then the helicopter performed several strafing runs over the hotel roof. And Pittman later stated his hope to at least strike Essex with a ricochet, although it is unknown whether he was wounded in any of these exchanges. Yeah. Keep in mind here, uh, 
at the police academy, you are trained on how to do a ricochet shot, okay? Um, when someone's cover is behind cover, like one example is how if someone's hiding behind a car, you're trained upon the, the angle to use to, to hit the concrete to get it to, to get the bullet to travel underneath the car oh, and at okay. least hit the assailant in the foot. Okay, so gotcha. you do receive some training in how to engineer a ricocheted shot. Barricade situations only, of course. In each instance that the helicopter flew away from the hop, from the hotel to reload, Mark Essex returned fire at the helicopter. So he is really he's he's holed up in this cubicle. He doesn't have a lot of ammunition left. And he's only returning fire at the helicopter as it's leaving. He's trying to intimidate them. Mm. Yeah. And it's oh. it's going to have an effect on the air crew of a helicopter if you start putting holes in it. Which isn't going to be good enough to really affect the helicopter because the, uh, you know, the aluminum alloy, uh, it, it's... The gunshots are going to pass through one side of the aluminum alloy frame and then out the other. Um, you're only by, by shooting the frame of the helicopter. You're only going to do damage if you hit a if, if you hit a hydraulic fluid line. What and if cause you, a hydraulics leak? What if you hit the rotor? It depends on the caliber. Oh, okay. Of the of the bullet, a pistol bullet. Wouldn't do anything. Even forty-four Magnum probably wouldn't damage the rotor. You'd need a, a rifle bullet, like a heavy rifle bullet, like the kind that uh, Mark Essex was using. No, that no. Keep in mind, even though it was a pistol caliber, I mean, it's a carbine. Okay, it was in a pistol caliber. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. The pistol pistol bullets don't have as hardened a shell. Or should I say a uh, plating over the bullet as a military rifle round would? So to take out a rotor, you need a military rifle round, preferably like fifty caliber, like a machine a machine gun round. Forty four Magnum pistol round isn't gonna isn't gonna do that. Now, initially, Superintendent Giarusso was reluctant to place any further officers at risk of injury or death by deploying them to the hotel roof. His strategy was to keep the sniper pinned in the cubicle in order to erode the mor his morale. And after several hours in a last-ditch effort to persuade Essex to surrender, Giarusso ordered a black police officer to communicate with, with Mar Mark Essex via a battery-operated bullhorn. The officer did attempt to persuade Mark to surrender for several minutes, ending his efforts by saying, what do you say, brother? Why not save yourself? Give up before it's too late. If you're wounded, we can get you medical help. Medical help. In response, Mark Essex just screamed, power to the people. In his mind, he was past the point of no return. Yes, yeah, I mean, you, he, he, he'd already cr created a lot of chaos. He's already killed several people. Yeah, he, there's no coming back from that. 
No, not in his mind. And although this officer responded to this gesture by saying, come on down, man, don't die, don't make us kill you, Mark Essex refused to say anything else. Shortly before 9 p.m., after almost seven hours crouched in the cubicle, Mark Essex suddenly charged into the open with his rifle at waist height and his fist held aloft, shouting, come and get me. And he was immediately shot by police sharpshooters positioned on the roofs of adjacent buildings. The military helicopter, which had just approached to begun, begin another strafe run, also fired scores of rounds into Mark Essex's body. The momentum of the bullets propelled his body several feet before he fell on his back 20 feet from the cubicle. He was unable to kill or wound anyone else, and the barrage of gunfire would continue for almost four minutes. The autopsy later revealed that Mark Essex had received more than 200 gunshot wounds. Yeah, these these were these were sharpshooters firing with uh, like Mark's act, asses with with uh, deer hunting rounds in essence. Mm. You know, three oh eight, thirty thirty six. Right. <clears throat> those 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 types of rounds. Uh, the old traditional military hunting style rounds from you know before the Vietnam War era, you know Korean War era and before. Uh, so you know they meant business. Now, in this case of snipers, the reason why a police sniper is going to use a 308 caliber or even, you know, 30 6 caliber round is because you need something that is going to stop your target from a distance. The greater the range, the, the less power the round is going to have. So you want something capable of traveling that distance that is still going to have the power to stop your adversary. Right. And of course, a, a you know, your classic 30 6 or 308 round falls well within that category. And we are going to stop here to take our final break. And we are back. An examination of the rifle that Mark Essex used revealed that he only had two bullets remaining when he exited the cubicle. Ballistic tests determined that the weapon was the same one that was used in the December 31st NOPD Central Lockup shooting and the Burkhart Manufacturing Building shootings. Ultimately, Mark Essex shot a total of 21 people and nine died. Two patrolmen were also hospitalized due to smoke inhalation received prior to and during their climbing down an elevator shaft to escape from the smoke-filled elevator that was stranded close to the 18th floor of the hotel. Seven other officers were slightly injured in crossfire in the final standoff with Mark Essex. Days after his death, his body was returned to his family in Kansas and his funeral was held at the St. James Church in Emporia on January 13, 1973. Two days after his death, police visited the apartment that he was living in. They discovered that Mark Essex had painted across all windows to the apartment and further covered the windows with bedding so that no natural light could penetrate into the apartment. The sole source of light into both rooms was provided by a single red light bulb 
and the only piece of furniture remaining was a waterbed. A map of New Orleans with a large circle drawn around police headquarters and the Howard Johnson's hotel was found on the floor. The walls of both rooms were covered in bold red and black lettering depicting racial and revolutionary slogans in both the English and several Bantu languages. Other slogans simply listed beasts from African folklore. Beneath one rallying slogan, Mark Essex had painted the words, My destiny lies in the bloody death of racist pigs. Another inscription read, The Third World killed Pig Nixon and his running dogs. He, he was talking about President Nixon, right? Yeah, he was talking about President Nixon. Yes, he was. Yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. You want to say something? Yeah. President Nixon was uh, very heavily identified with not only the tail end of the Vietnam War, but also the the proverbial war on drugs. Which did which did not help black people. No, no, it, it, it didn't. Uh, adding insult to injury. Uh, many black people then were jailed for small amounts of marijuana. Yes, unfortunately. Marijuana that people in the black community were using to gain some type of relief. A coping mechanism. Yeah, a a coping mechanism, yes. And marijuana does provide a good coping mechanism. Yes, it does. Yeah. In the following weeks, several prominent individuals within New Orleans' black community were interviewed with regards to the underlying motives behind Mark Essex's murders. One Louisiana state representative, uh, this is a name that if you live down here, you'll recognize, uh, Louis Charbonnet, felt that the media wanted to hear the black community of New Orleans apologize for the actions of Mark Essex. Charbonnet said, Here was a boy from Kansas who came here and vented his frustration in a suicide mission. What could I say about him? The black community in New Orleans did not invite him here, and we did not send him up to that rooftop. Which I don't think it's fair that you ask black people to try to account for the actions of somebody like this. Yeah, this man was not one of their peers. He wasn't even from New Orleans. He didn't... Well, he my, lived in New Orleans for a very short time. Well, so. also my point is that you know nobody goes around asking white people to say answer for the actions of somebody like Ted Bundy, right? Right. Okay. Like nobody's ever asked the white community to say, "Hey, how come you let Ted Bundy do this?" Well, we didn't let him do that. And same thing with the black community; they didn't let Mark Essex do anything. They didn't send him up there. They didn't call him to come down or nothing. Right, and the New Orleans black community well understood that this was not this was not the the way to deal with racism. So that so naturally, of course, they didn't want to embrace him because he, what they saw was a homicidal maniac killing lots of innocent people. Right, maiming right. maiming innocent people. Several months after the death of Mark Essex, a sociologist said that his idyllic childhood had left him ill-prepared to encounter intolerance and continuous racial discrimination as a young adult. A 
essentially he had not been vaccinated against the harsh realities of bigotry as a youngster. And ironically enough, had he grown up in New Orleans, he would have actually received that vaccination. Yeah, he would have, yes. Uh, One of the officers who was killed in this attack, uh, Deputy Superintendent Louis Sergo, had previously said very publicly that the most effective way to eliminate extremism within New Orleans was to end the social conditions that nourished social discontent within the black community. Just months prior to his death, Sergo had described the mistreatment of blacks in the city and nationwide as the greatest sin of American society. So Mark Essex killed somebody who understood this. Who was sympathetic. Who was, yes. Towards it. Yes. yes. Yeah. And for decades after the death of Louis Sergo, his widow Joyce annually presented the Louis Sergo Memorial Award to the most promising recruits of the NOPD Academy who were selected by their fellow officers. And that is essentially the ending of this story. Uh, This was something that happened 50 years ago. This is something that I heard about growing up. This is something that, you know, plenty of many people who are older than me remember very clearly. Yes. At the time when, uh, when I was a reserve police officer with New Orleans, I had met, I had met officers who were on the ground for that sniper attack. Wow. Okay. And as futile as it was, one of them, uh, who's retired from the department, you know, by now, uh, who told me that with his revolver, he was, he was, uh, he was firing Mm. from, from behind cover. Right. And he, in, in, he, he told me that there were, there were hunters who brought their hunting rifles from their homes and took up their own positions in the street, you know, from behind where the police were, who were firing at the top of the building at one point. Right. They heard reports on the the news or the radio of of this, of this occurring. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, Now, like mass shootings that we're, uh, you know, we're used to hearing about these days. Okay. I've noticed the fact that mass shooters will will pick a soft target. a pistol or rifle. Yeah, they'll pick soft. They'll try to pick soft targets. That they'll, as far as like what they're going to use in the attack, that they'll pick a rifle or a pistol that they romanticize. Mm, okay. For some reason, or okay, uh, these days because of movies, because of video games, and because the military uses it, although these people don't understand why the military uses the 5.56 round. We won't get into that discussion again here. Um, They'll pick the AR-15 because they're romanticizing this. It's it's in their mind. It's the ultimate battle rifle. Won't won't get into the reasons why, but but, uh, firearms experts, your most hardcore military types and veterans like myself, uh, no, no thanks. We, we wouldn't take that into combat by choice. It's just what the cheap ass government gave us. 
okay <laughs> you know but anyway another another, another discussion well Essex what Essex military experience didn't have anything to do with firearms but Essex was a hunter before the military right so he romanticized and believed in the capabilities of hunting rifles right okay, okay. so in, in tragic irony he selects a pretty effective cartridge and rifle and he knew how to use it effectively he he, he brought tons of 44 magnum ammunition to continue placing rounds in that in that in that mag in that uh magazine tube right you know because it was a tube fed firearm similar to say a lever action rifle going back to the days of the wild west or a uh a pump action shotgun right you know you don't have to wait till they run out you can just top the tube off as you fire in fact i was trained in the nop in the nopd's tactical shotgun class okay uh you use a remington 870 bolt uh not bolt action um you know pump action shotgun 12 gauge okay and they give you several rounds of ammunition I believe it i believe it was uh they have 10 rounds it could be 10 rounds of ammo so they have you load with the five rounds to start you off and as you go through the course you'll fire one shots or two shots at targets and from behind cover you'll you know with the five rounds you'll top off the tube as you go mm-hmm. okay uh with the with the shotgun trained on target as as you're topping off the mag tube okay so by the time you've completed this little course you'll feel a fired all 10 rounds and you'll have loaded you'll have topped off your tube five times okay and you'll have a bruise on your shoulder you know <laughs> um so you know what i'm getting at here is it's um it's not necessarily the uh the model of the firearm that you select to do something like this it's it's how you utilize it right but nobody should ever be doing something like this no 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 of, of, of course not uh but there are other ways to deal with things like this or to well or there are other ways to deal with how you might feel about something that doesn't have to involve killing people most fortunately most people don't resolve their differences with society by murdering people we are talking about a fraction of one percent of the population right that either already has no qualms about killing people or has successfully radicalized and dehumanized people whom they do not like right in this case mark essex in advance had dehumanized police officers he dehumanized white people and was raised but was ready to murder anybody including other black people if they got in his way yes yeah and you know like we talked about in last week's episode uh, the ambush in st john st john parish you know extremism is always a bad thing it didn't it doesn't ever really lead to anything good yeah and that you see a comparison here like these these white supremacist types 
mm-hmm. involved in that St. James Parish ambush. Okay. They had uh, variations of the AKM rifle, 30 round banana magazines. So they had plenty of, plenty of firepower available to them, but because they, you know, of course their tactics were bad as in, as in, in the ambush, they were using an infantry rifle at close range. They were using the infantry rifles at close range, which meant that the police officers were capable of defending themselves with pistols. Right. You see, so they were engaging the police on the, on their terms, on the police's terms, you see, whereas in this instance, for a good bit of this engagement, Mark Essex was engaging the police on his terms. Right. You see, so a good bit of the time he was using a, a rifle from a rifle range, which right gave yeah. him a tremendous advantage. And with a three-shot hunting rifle. Mm, you see? Yeah. So it, it goes back to this old saying that I first heard in the Marine Corps. That it's not it's not the weapon, it's the operator. Right. It's it's also like uh, when w- one of my old bosses told me one time, he said, you know, Tracy, most of the time it's user error. Yes, it, it goes and it falls right in wide line with that. Yes. Now, this was not in the context of firearms. This was in terms of work equipment. But he was, you know, my, my point is still similar to Brian's point. Yes, most properly manufactured pieces of equipment will function as intended as well as if they're being used as intended hmm. so do you have any more final thoughts before we wrap up yes i do a little a bit of personal advice here okay uh, if you love coffee it's great it, it can help you relieve stress Exercise is a great reliever of stress and what ails you in life as well. And uh, if you're a movie buff, yes. Uh, Buying the AMC Stubbs A-list membership (laughs) and uh, going to see as many as three movies a week, not paying admission, that can really relieve some of the stress of life as well. Uh, Yeah. so in case anyone else hasn't figured it out, yes, I, this is the kind of, this is the kind of stuff I do to relieve stress, you know, spend dog lover. I spend time with dogs too. Yeah. See? Oh yeah. So dogs are, dogs are so wonderful. Right. I just want to say just how much I love dogs. And I got to say like working in the French quarter and getting to see the amount of people walking dogs. And if I'm outside on a break, you know, a lot of times you know, dogs love to come smell my shoes and it's always just the cutest thing. Yes. So self-isolation and doing nothing but staring at the wall and sitting on your hatred for a bit is not going to lead anywhere good. Right. And that's, that, that was the, that was the, the last straw that was lighting the powder keg for Mark Essex. Right. Yeah. My advice is to expose yourself to different viewpoints now, you can do this in safe ways. You don't have to really even interact with people directly to do this. Uh, read books. Watch movies. You know, find a couple of YouTube uh, 
channel hosts that you that that are that don't seek out people who have viewpoints that are so extreme and hateful that they encourage you to go do bad things. Seek out people who have a wide variety of viewpoints and can introduce you to these things in a, in, in a context, like a safe context, a safe way to explore viewpoints. Because the world today, we have so many more ways that you can, that you can explore these things than you know you could 50 years ago. Yeah, my, my first, the first time I, I, I had that privilege, it, it was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And you could say it was proverbial locker room talk, okay, where everyone is speaking quite frankly, speaking their minds, and, and, and it's a no-judgment zone. No one's judging each other for what they say. Right. But you're educating each other on what you really think about certain things, and then you get feedback from opposing viewpoints. And it's it's amazing how eye-opening it can be right and people who don't go in the military can usually get this experience when they go to college yes meeting people from different communities and different cultures and i i also want to tell people you know i'm 42 years old i've been on this earth for like four decades and two years now i don't know what the average age of the audience might be but I just want to say that I've noticed that because of the uprising of social media, you know, I, I think that we tend to see people's opinions more and more. And we perhaps decide that, you know, these opinions that people can hold is, I mean, yeah, it, it does make up a person's viewpoint. It does, it does show you their mindset. But just because somebody might have a different opinion than you on certain things does not mean you have to be enemies. Okay. You don't necessarily have to agree with them. You don't have to agree with them. Like, for example, though, but, but of course th there is a line, right? Like, for example, you can have different opinions on a movie. Like, just because you might like a movie and somebody dislikes the movie, it doesn't mean that they're attacking you as a person. Okay. Now, of course, where that line is is um does that person believe that you should no longer exist based on your your race your sexual orientation your religion okay that's where the line for me is always drawn if you feel that people don't should not exist because they're black or because they're gay or because they're jewish that's the line for me you're not a good person if you believe that people should not exist because of those things, for example. Yeah, talking to someone or watching a podcast of someone or reading someone's opinion in a book who you disagree with or is from a different culture than you is a, is a learning experience. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to buy in to what they're saying or what they believe, but you can learn from it. Right. You can learn about people you disagree with and possibly figure out why you disagree with them, why why they think the way they do. Right. right. All right. Well, we are going to wrap it up here. 
We thank you so much for joining us in our 50th episode. I can't wait to make 50 more. <laughs> <laughs> and on Coffee Talk the, the next week, we're going to be talking about the New Orleans trolley strike and how that led to the invention of an iconic New Orleans food, the po' boy sandwich. Ah, yeah. Yeah. 1911 we're talking about? I believe so, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I believe the, the po' boy sandwich was invented in the year 1911. All right. Don't, no spoilers. Yeah. No spoilers. All right, everybody. So be safe. Be kind. Remember that we're all human beings. <laughs> don't park next to vans. Read books. Yes. Be good to yourself. Engage in stress-relieving uh, recreation. Love your neighbors, love your pets, or love other people's pets if you don't have yours, your own. Um, and if it's dark, it's dangerous, you don't feel safe, don't go there in the first place. Discretion is the better part of valor. And if you are talking to law enforcement in a professional capacity and you are not the witness or the victim to a crime, lawyer up. 